I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, diplomats, and we try to get to know the person. Our guest today is Consul General Roy Norton, who represents Canada in the Midwest. His responsibilities include Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Roy, welcome to Profiles. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dr. O'Mara. I thought we might chat a little bit about you before we even start. Okay. An interesting background. You have lived in America. You've studied in America. You have university. You finished your first degree at Carleton. And then off you went to Harvard, to the Kennedy School, and then to SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the Canadian coming to America as a student and how this has influenced your life since then. Well, there are a lot of Canadians that come to America. There are about 30,000 Canadians that study in the United States in any given year, about three times as many as there are Americans studying in Canada. We are obsessed in some respects. Canadians are with America. Uh, We live, uh, 90% of us almost, live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. I call it our (laughs) sunbelt. And as a result, we've always been subjected to influences, American influences. Before there was cable television, we had antenna on our roofs, and we watched U.S. network television. Uh, We listened to U.S. radio. When I left, I'm jumping ahead here, but when I left the United States the first time uh, after six years of living there, from 1989 to 1995, I was I approached the whole thing with equanimity. I was going back home. I was uh, going to complete my doctoral studies, write a dissertation, and I suddenly lost the NPR signal about huh. 20 miles across the Canadian border, and it dawned on me at that instant that I was truly leaving. I didn't anticipate coming back, but I'm delighted to have had the opportunity to do so. So uh, clearly I enjoy your country mm-hmm. a great deal. It's not normal for somebody who ends up in the foreign service in Canada or in any country only to serve in places that they could drive to. Yes. But fundamentally that's what I've done. Yeah. I've had two postings in Washington, D.C. at our embassy and now this one here uh, in the industrial heartland of the United States. You also worked in the Canadian Parliament. I did. Uh, right out of school the first time round, I worked for three years in our House of Commons and five years in our Senate, not in an, in an elective capacity, but as a staff uh, aide to uh, a member of parliament, a member of the House of Commons, and subsequently two senators. And at some point, I noticed you were interested and worked on the North Atlantic Free Trade. Yes, the um, Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, uh, which was completed in 1988, came into effect in 89, and was quickly overtaken by the North American free trade agreement, uh, U.S., Mexico, and Canada. And my first posting in Washington corresponded with those negotiations, and I was a member of our negotiating team for two of the chapters, two of the path-breaking chapters in the sense that there had never been free trade agreements with um, investment or intellectual property 
components, and it was particularly informative to be uh, to be part of that exercise. I learned a lot about um, trade policy uh, and a lot about uh, American negotiators. You know, as an academic and as a political scientist, I'm always intrigued. You went to two major schools. You went to the Kennedy School and the School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. Those are really pivotal centers for current politics. Now, what you did there, you did a doctorate at SAIS. Mm-hmm. Has that had any effect on you as a, as a diplomat? Did, did doing that thesis in any way have a continuing influence on you? Sure. But again, my circumstances were a little bit different. I was a mature student and I went to Harvard having already worked for 13 years. For what it's worth, I was in a class with your president uh, at Harvard. It was the year that he was the uh, editor of the Law Review. It was a relatively small class with uh, 30-odd folks in it, taught by Christopher Edley, uh, who's now, um, uh, I think, dean of law at uh, Berkeley. A law and public policy was the course, and then student Barack Obama was um, very impressive, uh, hardly surprising, uh, fulfilled uh, all that and more that one might have expected of him at the time. The Harvard experience, I mean, Harvard obviously uh, has a worldwide reputation, and uh, including in Canada. Uh, I had been a, um, a decent student um, the first time round when I did a master's degree in Canadian history, but was pretty much intimidated by doctoral students and didn't think that that um, I had the potential or capacity to uh, to do a doctorate, even though I was notionally uh, intrigued by the idea. Frankly, did well at Harvard, um, was close to the top of the class. And um, uh, as a result, uh, that rekindled the notion that, yes, I could do a doctorate, um, went off to SICE, went off to serve at our embassy in Washington, being a literalist, uh, and assigned to the economics section, I felt deficient in economics and so took on a part-time basis a master's degree in international economics at SICE. And while there, they asked me if I would be interested in potentially doing a doctorate. I had served consecutively in our secretary, uh, our foreign affairs secretary's office for five years and then at the embassy in Washington, which is Canada's premier embassy globally. Yeah. And doubted that I would ever, or at least for some time, uh, that I would have an opportunity uh, in our foreign service to have assignments that would be remotely as consequential as what those had been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so left. I quit and uh, went to be a student. I consulted uh, while, while, as in I did consulting, something that you can do as a mature student um, uh, more lucratively uh, than you possibly could if you were doing this first time round, and uh, the rest is is history. I ended up rejoining the Foreign Service uh, some years later, uh, but I studied international relations, having been involved in international relations, and moved on to do more work in international relations. So, uh, at least in one respect, the academic pursuit was highly relevant and highly connected to what it is had been the career path that I was following. That's not always the case for folks. I think probably uh, because I was doing this as a mature student, I had a clearer idea of just what it is I wanted to study. You know, it's interesting. You've had this experience of 
America as a student, America as a diplomat. I've interviewed a lot of people from different parts of the world. You were the very first Canadian that I've interviewed. And I wonder if that is indicative of the general awareness of Canada by many people in the United States. Do you feel people know Canada's there? And it's, as you said, we are the Sun Belt. Mm. But do we really see a deep understanding of Canada and Canadian issues? Probably not, and that may actually be to our advantage. Uh, <laughs> people people in, in Washington my, during my last posting uh, used to lament. They would come from Canada and they would say, we're nowhere on the radar screen in Washington. And I would remind them that Iran and North Korea were on the radar screen yes. and suggest to them that they, not, that they didn't necessarily want to be there. I'm here this week in, in Indiana. We're calling it Canada Week in Indiana because I'm here for a week. Uh, it began in, in South Bend, continued to Lafayette, uh, to Indianapolis, up to Warsaw, uh, to uh, Fort Wayne, down here last night to, uh, to Bloomington, and I'll be back in, in Indianapolis at the end of the day. And the objective of this visit is really very much to increase our profile. I've met with a fair number of members of, of media outlets and various outlets because you're absolutely right. We're not top of mind. Um, this isn't a problem for Canada. Uh, we don't crave, we don't feel uh, um, alienated because we aren't top of mind. We're by far the biggest trading partner that you've got. The state of Indiana uh, exports um, more to Canada than to its next seven export destinations put together. Uh, but uh, it probably uh, would help if folks thought a little bit more about the opportunities that associated with Canada and pursued them. We aren't exotic. We aren't China. We aren't India. We aren't Russia. We're not a threat. We're a friend. We're consistently a friend and reliable ally. And as a result, perhaps are overlooked. Again, I don't think that's a particular problem. But my objective is to cause people to think a little bit more about us than what they necessarily have been doing. Yeah, this very point of Indiana and Canada is intriguing because I saw some statistics on the number of jobs in the state of Indiana. And I think it's over 160,000 Hoosiers who depend in many ways on this relationship, this trade relationship. Precisely. We do a macroeconomic study at the Canadian Embassy, it's updated every couple of years, and the most recent one showed that 162,300 Hoosiers depend for their employment on uh, trade with Canada. That's one in every 17 employed folks in this state, which is, again, a larger number than would uh, correspond with your trade with any other jurisdiction, making it pretty important. Now, it's seamless. There are no particular barriers. There are no significant issues, but it grew last year. The numbers for 2011 are just out um, over 2010. It grew to $18.5 billion, the two-way trade relationship. Indiana uh, has a surplus of about $4 billion. We're actually the only one of Indiana's top eight trading partners with which the state has a surplus, uh, making us a particularly attractive uh, partner and market, I would think, for, uh, for uh, Hoosier companies. What about the other states that you're dealing with, mm -hmm. Kentucky, 
for example, is equally intense? Well, it's not equally intense, but then the population of Kentucky isn't as large as that of, of Indiana. Uh, in the in the four states that that uh, I represent our interests in, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, Michigan is Canada's largest trading partner in the world, more than any country, save and except the United States. Um, Ohio is uh, about fourth in the United States. Uh, Indiana is uh, seventh or eighth in the United States. Kentucky, perhaps twelfth uh, or thirteenth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the auto- what links the four states is the automotive sector. Uh, this is uh, automotive alley, as it mm-hmm. were. Um, uh, each state assembles uh, automobiles. The Detroit Three and other companies. As well, there are a lot of parts manufacturers that supply, and it's the automotive sector that dominates, not exclusively, but it is the largest single component of the trade between the four industrial heartland states and Canada. And that applies to Indiana. It applies in, in the case of, of Indiana, too, yeah. yes. Uh, Michigan. Mm-hmm. I've heard that if a second bridge were built, we'd see a lot more traffic in terms of uh, industrial and economic interest. Well, it's one of the issues that I actually have uh, have been hammering a little bit during this trip. I met with your Senate leadership, both on the majority and minority side. Uh, I impressed upon them the importance of the bridge. And at first blush, it isn't obvious why a bridge between Detroit and Windsor necessarily would be of consequence to Indiana. But the point that I made was that more than half of... Indiana's trade with Canada, on which those 162,000 people depend for their employment, crosses the 83-year-old Ambassador Bridge, which isn't getting younger. Uh, It's 30 years older than the Sherman-Minton Bridge in southern Indiana, connecting into Louisville, that was found last September to have catastrophic cracks and was closed down for six months. At least in southern Indiana, Louisville, they had options They don't have options at Detroit-Windsor. And so we, the Canadian government, have made a new bridge at Detroit-Windsor our number one national infrastructure priority. It would, in our view, provide insurance for the future against the prospect of catastrophic failure or just uh, old age that Mm -hmm. uh, at some point results in the Ambassador Bridge no longer being operative. And it would mean that companies who very much organize themselves, predicated on the notion that they can move things back and forth seamlessly and quickly in a just-in-time delivery environment to and from Canada, um, will have the confidence of knowing that that transportation link will exist going forward. So in Ohio, I mean, this is a project that Michigan, in a very real sense, has control over. Canada has actually agreed to pay for the whole thing or assume liability for the whole thing so that Michigan will bear none. But it is importance beyond. And in Ohio, the state Senate there in each of the last two years passed a resolution uh, unanimously endorsing the bridge, the second time, I guess, for emphasis. And so I encouraged your Senate leadership to consider in the days that remain in the session this year, to consider doing exactly the same thing, to send a signal to folks in Michigan that uh, this has regional importance. It's not just a local Mm -hmm. issue uh, in the state of Michigan. Is it going to happen? Well, it will happen ultimately because 
pragmatism and common sense on this, as on so many issues, will prevail. But uh, it's taking longer than it should, and that is uh, a growing concern, including to corporations as they contemplate expansion in the area, but don't know for certain that they will have the ability to move things at Detroit-Windsor. It carries, that bridge carries a quarter of the U.S.-Canada trade relationship, a quarter of the world's largest two-way trade relationship. By value, 8,500 trucks a day cross it. By value, it's the most important border crossing in the world, meaning we really should tend it uh, carefully uh, and attentively uh, to ensure that, um, that capacity exists and that it can operate efficiently. Which brings me to the economy. Yes. The Economist recently was expressing concern about the housing market, mm-hmm. concern that Canada may be on the verge of a problem, that um, interest rates are low, that in effect there's speculation going on with real estate. Tell me a little bit about this issue, but maybe also the broader issue. After all, the world has been in many ways in a recession. Mm-hmm. So Canada, in a recessive environment, continues to be seeing speculators on the real estate area. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a difference in terms of what has happened in other parts of the world? Well, there's a difference, I think. There's some fundamental differences between the U.S. and Canada in this regard. Uh, on the general economic uh, level, uh, we came through the recession relatively well. Our unemployment level is 7.6%. That's still yes, too high. Good. But it's, it's... It's better than the U.S. Well, it's better than the U.S. Uh, actually, there's been a narrowing lately. The U.S. Mm-hmm. unemployment rate's been coming down, and ours has gone up a little bit. Um, we are so dependent upon the success of your economy, frankly, that uh, if one sees further signs of recovery here, that will be very heartening in Canada. We had no bank failures Indeed, no banks even required assistance during the most recent... Is that uh, also because you have a different mortgage structure? It's, it's, it's substantially because we have a different mortgage structure. And we don't, as a matter of public policy, uh, promote uh, mortgages uh, for people who probably should be thinking of renting instead of buying. Um, banks are largely prohibited from doing so. And indeed, in Canada, you have to have 20% down before you can get a government-insured mortgage, uh, which has had the effect of meaning that even if home prices fell a little bit, the likelihood of people finding themselves underwater, so to speak, uh, was much less than was the case in Canada. The bubble that you refer to, uh, or the potential for a bubble, is a function of um, growing urban populations in places like Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver in particular, where I mean, Canada takes about 1% of its population in immigration, in legal immigration each year, meaning that we accept something in the order of 250 to 300,000 Canadians, yeah. new Canadians each year. Overwhelmingly, they go to uh, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, Winnipeg, mm-hmm. um, major centers. And uh, the influx of people into into those cities... Uh, has the effect of continuing to drive up house prices. No surprise there. Demand uh, equates with uh, or causes uh, causes prices to go. But we don't. We think that structurally, where 
better insured against uh, some of the calamitous uh, uh, difficulty that we saw here. And um, interest rates remain very low in Canada, as they do here, which feeds this phenomenon. But they have to remain low, of course, given that course. the recession um, – we're not in recession now, but we're not in a high growth. Uh, you know, we, we, we led the G7 um, for most of the past five years in growth. We got back all of the jobs that we lost during the recession. Um, but – uh, we're not uh, going on all cylinders either. The resource economy has uh, has sustained us to a substantial extent and is responsible for much of our success. Uh, but we need to keep interest rates low so as to stimulate further activity. And as a result, that has the, the effect of potentially um, causing a bubble. Our our leaders are are pretty confident that uh, that you're not going to see, however, a problem like not, not a catastrophic, not no. a catastrophic problem. No, this might be a good point for us to have some music. Ah, I know you're a Canadian at heart, so maybe some music from a Canadian. And you've mentioned to me that you like Leonard Cohen. I do. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river You can hear the boats go by You can spend the night beside her And you know that she's half crazy But that's why you want to be there And she feeds you tea and oranges That come all the way from China You have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer That you've always been her lover Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. This is Profiles, and our guest today is Roy Norton, Consul General for Canada in Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Indiana. Roy, we're delighted that you're here, and we might continue our discussion. I want to move to an interesting topic and a rather sensitive one, this whole notion of Canada, of course, as a nation, and Quebec. Quebec has moved from, at one point, seeking separatism to some sort of federal engagement with Canada. Is it still a burning issue for you and for Canada? Well, it's a much less burning issue than it was in the, um, in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. There were actually referenda in Quebec in 1976 and in 1995 of the sort that one anticipates could potentially take place in the United Kingdom vis-a-vis -vis Scotland, for example, um, in the years ahead. And each of the referenda lost, albeit narrowly, in the sense that the referendum question was established by the 
the then separatist government of Quebec in each uh, at each time, and uh, a sufficient majority of Quebecers opposed the notion of barely sufficient majority opposed the notion of separation, that the integrity of the country remained unaffected. Uh, there has been a considerable decline in support for separation since that time. Uh, there's still a constituency, to be sure. It tends to be, interestingly, an older constituency, people who were active on this file in their youth, uh, who uh, baby boomers who, as they age, uh, won't let it go, as it were. Uh, but uh, polls consistently show that if a referendum were to be held again, um, it is unlikely that it would uh, come close to commanding as much support as it was. So obviously it's important that the government of Canada uh, uh, as a federal government uh, continue to pursue policies that, that uh, with which Quebecers feel comfortable – uh, just as it's important that they pursue policies that Albertans uh, mm -hmm. feel comfortable with. Um, I think it's it's much less of a problem than what it was uh, 15 or 20 years ago. But it's also a problem of identity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because in many ways, you have American television, you have English becoming a world language, you have Canada with many new immigrant groups coming into the country. And I suppose there is a sense that this French identity has to be nurtured and maintained. Now, what about the economic viability? The, the whole idea of separation maybe is on the back burner. But was it ever really a viable alternative? For well, certainly Federalists contended that, that a separate Quebec would not have been economically viable. We have a system of, of transfer payments, it's called, mm -hmm. the measure of distribution of national wealth within the country from provinces uh, that do better to ones that, that do less well. And Quebec is consistently on the receiving end of those transfers, which, of course, they would no longer have been eligible for uh, had they separated. The identity issue is an interesting one because arguably, uh, I mean, we all, we English-speaking Canadians are awash in a sea of English-speaking America with there being fewer and fewer uh, points to distinguish, perhaps, uh, we English Canadians from you mm -hmm. English-speaking Americans. Uh, by contrast, Quebecers have the insurance policy of their own language. And so newspapers, uh, television and radio stations, commerce is to a substantial extent conducted in French. Uh, the identity, therefore, is more secure arguably, than what English-Canadian identity in North America uh, could be said to be. What about this idea that was expressed, that Quebec was a nation within a united Canada? Well, Does that make sense? Again, um, there's a semantical issue. Uh, a lot of folks, including people that opposed the notion of Quebec separatism, were prepared to accept that the idea of Quebec small n nationhood, that indeed Quebecers were uh, a people, a distinct mm -hmm. people uh, within the context of a united Canada. And that isn't a particularly problematic concept in reality. I mean, we have a lot of nations in Canada. Uh, we, 
not equating Quebecers and Aboriginal groups, but we have uh, First Nations, the First Peoples of Canada, Indians, as it were, uh, governed by the Indian Act of Canada and Inuit, uh, previously yeah. known as Eskimos yeah. uh, in the in the north, uh, now now uh, now called First Nations. Um, Quebecers uh, consider themselves a nation as well, and we have a lot of we're a very diverse population by virtue of our immigration policies, and uh, there are a lot of of communities with very distinct cultures. We pursue a policy of multiculturalism, encouraging people uh, to retain their heritage language um, as well as learning English or French, for example. We think that gives us many advantages in the world. there's more intensity with this particular nation. Sure. Much more intensity in a way. It reminds me of... Catalans, or in, mm-hmm. in terms of Spain. Well, it is. It is Quebec's population is seven and a half million, yeah. um, slightly bigger than that of Indiana. Uh, the French-speaking population of Quebec would be approximately equal to the population of Indiana, uh, and so there's a concentration and there's a, a, a numeric uh, uh, potency, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, that's much greater than that of any other nation, so to speak, in in Canada. Um, but relations were fraught um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and uh, the issue has substantially disappeared from the national political debate. There are other pressures, though, and other movements. I wonder if the center of gravity is also moving away from Montreal to Toronto in terms of an economic center and whether the country itself is moving further and further westward. Hmm. And whether this is a phenomenon that is changing the equation rather than the issue of a fight for separatism. You know, the -the on-the-ground changes that are taking place. Mm -hmm. Reality is taking place. And and also what happens with second and third generation French Canadians? Mm -hmm. Are Mm -hmm. Are they... moving a little bit further away from this intensity that we talked about? Well, I think they are, to answer that question first, and that's why you see the decline in in, uh, affinity for the notion of of separation. Uh, This was a a debate of the parents, but it's not one that the Mm -hmm. children have decided to sustain. Uh, Yes, uh, some time ago, uh, Montreal was Canada's um, financial, uh, commercial, business, uh, industrial capital for um, uh, generations uh, pre- and post-Confederation. We we united as a country in 1867. The shift progressively took place to Toronto, as in Toronto ultimately displaced Montreal. Montreal remains a, a, a vital center, to be sure, but Toronto became very much the the financial and commercial capital of, of Canada. And increasingly, you're, you're right, uh, population shifts and immigration that settles in the West is, is causing there to be um, further changes uh, and accentuates the importance of Western Canada uh, relative to both Toronto, Ontario, and Montreal, Quebec. Um, you know, Toronto's, Ontario's population is... 14 million, Alberta's population is 4 million. 
So it's not as if we anticipate any uh, imminent uh, eclipse of Ontario. Uh, But uh, to be sure, the uh, natural resources uh, boom that's taking place in Western Canada, uh, particularly in the energy sector in Alberta, uh, is is tipping the balance to a certain extent and is is very much underscoring the relative importance of Alberta and British Columbia and Saskatchewan in the Canadian Confederation. Let me take this argument to another level. The whole question of conservatism, which is very much a part of the United States at the moment, conservative elements, the Tea Party, Stephen Harper represents a more conservative stance, obviously. Tell me a little more about this divide in Canada between conservatives and center and left of center. Mm-hmm. Are there strengths? Is the conservative direction increasingly significant in Canada? What effect does that have on Canadian politics? I know it's a coalition government, but tell me more about this, this whole notion of because it's part of a worldwide phenomenon. Right. Well, in fact, the the Conservative Party of, of Prime Minister Harper um, had a minority government uh, through its first two elections in 2006 yes. and 2008, but it won a majority government last May. And oh, so that's it, right. It's no longer a coalition. And, and it was never formally a coalition in any event. But um, the Prime Minister Harper is a conservative economist, to be sure. He's a very pragmatic leader uh, who doesn't um, pursue extreme policies um, uh, in any regard uh, whatsoever. Canadians find the government uh, to be popular. It, it, you know, bear in mind, you're talking about a government that, that led the country through the Canadian equivalent of the Great Recession and still within a minority situation and won a majority at the end of that recession. So Canadians clearly felt that the policies of the government were attractive. It's not an especially ideological government, however. Uh, The party replaced um, the longstanding progressive conservative party. Uh, There was was a a decline in support for the progressive conservative party. There was an alternative party called the Reform Party, of which Stephen Harper... Stephen Harper had been a progressive conservative. He was a founder of the Reform Party, um, and it ultimately merged with the with the remains of the Progressive Conservative Party to form the Conservative Party. We have a parliamentary system. It's rare that any party uh, wins more than 50% of the vote in an election. First-past-the-post system yields majority governments, however, even with something approaching only 40% of the vote, which is what the the Harper uh, Conservative Party got in uh, the 2011 election. Uh, we observe what happens in the United States and around the rest of the world, uh, but we don't copy everything. Uh, I think we have uh, a, a certain distinctiveness in our political system uh, that um, that is Canadian, uh, that, that has to uh, take account of the regional forces that exist within Canada, provinces in Canada have uh, by by uh, statute uh, by virtue of the constitution more power than what states have in in the US. in the US and one of the indicators 
of that is that in the U.S., if you if you look at federal spending and state spending cumulatively, the federal government spends two thirds of all of the spending at the two senior levels of government. In Canada, the federal government and the provinces each spend half. And so, relatively speaking, provinces are more important in Canada than what states, states are. And a lot of the contentious issues, um, whether it's health care, uh, perhaps being the best example, uh, are, are managed at the level of provincial governments mm-hmm. in, in, in Canada. Uh, and and um, therefore, uh, a lot of the contention doesn't rise to the level of federal debate. This, this takes place uh, locally or regionally uh, in the context of provincial elections. But, but to return to the question, I'm assuming that to the far right of Prime Minister Harper, there are strong elements in Canada or reasonably articulate elements. Sure. The Conservative Party, like the other parties in Canada, is itself a coalition that that um, has to uh, blend uh, influences that are on the far right, as you put it, the center, and indeed, right. um, in the case of the Conservative Party, uh, those who were progressive conservatives, uh, perhaps to the left of center. Um, the Liberal Party, which was Canada's dominant political party for the longest time, has fallen into a, a state of uh, that it's unfamiliar with. Uh, it's now the third party in the House of Commons. But it, too, is a coalition of their, their liberals who are more conservative, small c, perhaps not radical right-wingers, um, and the pro- perhaps not radical left-wingers. They may find themselves in the official opposition, the New Democratic Party or Social Democratic Party. Interesting. Health care. Yes. You mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Americans are very interested in health care. Give us a profile of yourself in terms of you, in mm-hmm. terms of health care. You have national health care. So if you get ill, mm-hmm. tell us what happens to you. Well, if you get ill, or maybe more Personally, to the point. in a sense. Maybe more to the point, uh, even if you aren't ill, uh, you arrange uh, an appointment with the doctor. And everybody tends to have a general practitioner that they go to. Uh, pretty routinely for checkups. In other words, our system places a premium on preventative medicine. Uh, it, it spends a disproportionate share of total expenditures on care at the earlier end of one's life and less at the later end of one's life. Infant mortality is significantly less in Canada. Our lifespan is longer in Canada. That's than the U.S., than in the United States, and that's surely not because uh, it's easier to live in the colder part of the continent, um, but it's probably because we uh, more routinely uh, consult with physicians and are referred um, uh, as needed to um, uh, additional care or or pharmaceuticals or whatever. Uh, Many folks tried during the... uh, your most recent debate on national health care in the U.S. I was in at the embassy in Washington at the time, and many people tried to drag us into this debate one way or the other, citing Canada either as the model, as a model, either of what should or should not be done. And we insisted properly 
that this is your debate, not ours. We're not trying to market our model. It works for us. Canadians attach great value to it. Canadians, uh, to a uh, shockingly great extent, often distinguish Canada from the United States, citing our healthcare system. Um, it's not perfect. You know, provinces, the province of Ontario, where I worked for six years from 2000 to 2006, now spends 45% of all of its budget on health care. Compared it, to con- uh, uh, provinces that might not have as rich a resource base. Well, but even, even those provinces spend a high and growing percentage of their budgets on health care, somewhat inevitable as our population ages as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so questions arise as as to the sustainability of that system. Um, people who are, uh, I mean, everybody, including in the United States, rations health care in one way or another. Um, we ration health care. Uh, in a sense, by requiring people, particularly for elective procedures, to wait a while. You can't just decide today to get a new hip tomorrow. You might wait six months to get a new hip, and you might suffer during that period of time, and nobody wants people to suffer. But it would cost you know, 55% of provincial government spending to ramp up a system to be able to respond instantly to everyone's need or demand. Could you get a new hip if you could afford to pay for it yourself? Well, heretofore, in most parts of the country, not, but increasingly, yes. And in any event, I mean, some people say that that our healthcare system is able to survive in its current format because if you can afford to pay for it for yourself, you probably can go to the Cleveland Clinic uh, or somewhere in the United States and get one quickly. Um, But you asked me about me. One of the advantages, perhaps, uh, of our system uh, is that you don't get bills and you don't have large bureaucracies processing bills. Um, We spend in Canada something in the order of 11% of gross domestic product on health care. You spend in the U.S. something in the order of 17% on health care. And it is alleged that a substantial component of that difference is essentially consumed by insurance companies that are arbitrating whether or not to pay for uh, or or simply processing payment. All of this is done um, in Canada in a relatively efficient way uh, in um, in our system. But our system is ours. I stress again, we're not trying to vend it to you as a as a model. But you are seen as a model. Well, perhaps we are, and um, and uh, it always gives Canadian satisfaction, I suppose, to be seen as a model uh, in any in any uh, area of endeavor. So, so let me say, in a sense, you're saying the quality is good, mm-hmm. which is one of the big arguments in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That if you move towards a wider healthcare policy, you're not going to have quality. And two, you're saying that there's a lot of preventative mm-hmm. work that is done. Mm-hmm. What about the woman who is diagnosed with a serious breast cancer, mm-hmm. what happens? Has to wait like the person with the hip? No, 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 no. Uh, anybody that's found to have a serious condition uh, will will be dealt with immediately, will be referred to a specialist, will be accepted into a hospital. Go to the top of the line. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's enough capacity in the system to be able to, to do So that. the system ultimately 
covers all Canadians. Yes. And and not everybody is 100% happy in Canada or in the United States or in Britain with the National Health Service or anywhere else. Uh, but but uh, Canadians are overwhelmingly happy with our health care system. Let me move to the idea of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And Prime Minister Harper is just back from China. Mm-hmm. And Canada is clearly doing some interesting things in reaching out to China. There was um, substantial discussion on this current trip about eliminating trade barriers. Mm-hmm. That, of course, has to be ratified, but the intent is there. Tell me about China and its eagerness to reach out to, the, to Canada and vice versa, Canada's eagerness to reach to China. Mm-hmm. Well, China is a force uh, and going to be a growing one that all countries are going to have to deal with. And we approach that challenge with uh, enthusiasm. Uh, There are a lot of uh, expat Chinese in Canada, a population of about a million perhaps. Uh, In other words, 3%, 4% of Canada's population. And uh, the Prime Minister indeed led a, a mission to China in the second week of February. It was his second trip in a year to China. Uh, he talked a lot about trade barriers and eliminating them. He talked a lot about energy and the importance of doing more energy trade, as in China purchasing, frankly, uh, oil and, and other, uh, other energy uh, from Canada, which uh, has a lot of potential and would serve the purpose of diversifying uh, our market. We have exported 99% of our oil to the United States to this point. Uh, It's not absolutely clear that the United States continues to want uh, the oil, although we're hopeful that that, uh, the signals will improve in that regard. Uh, And the Prime Minister is anxious that we diversify our markets, and so... That was a major subject of discussion with uh, with China. We don't feel threatened by China. We regard the the growth of China as an opportunity. Do you think the Keystone Pipeline is in abeyance for the moment, and perhaps after the election we might see further discussion? Well, I think you will see further discussion. Uh, I think you're going to see further discussion during the course of this year, not incited by the government of Canada, obviously. We don't involve ourselves in, in Internal, your political system. Yeah. But um, the president made clear to the prime minister that the rejection uh, had to do with process matters concerning the environmental review of the slightly rerouted Keystone Pipeline and did not constitute a rejection on substance. And we're expecting that come January or February of 2013, uh, there may be uh, a different decision. Uh, We're certainly hopeful that there'll be a different decision because the economic and geostrategic benefits recognized perhaps to the greatest by your senior senator from from Indiana, uh, Dick Luger, who has, Mm -hmm. uh, if there's one person in Washington who has consistently got it in terms of appreciating the the potential benefits to the United States of North American energy self-sufficiency, I think it, it surely is Senator Richard Luger. I think, you know, in the broader sense also, we have to take into account the relationship between the two countries and what this might mean to it. And also the whole idea of the border. I mean, this border is becoming more and more important. And Canada is supporting the U.S. in terms of protection of that border. So, I mean, the pipeline is one issue, but we've also got to see the broader issue, that there's a different relationship 
that is emerging in terms of mutual cooperation and protection. Well, we have a wonderful relationship with the United States, and I can't imagine it ever being anything but wonderful. There will be irritants along the way, but we're joined at the hip, quite literally. Uh, We have to manage this continent. It's a big continent. It's the longest border in the world. Um, We've invested a lot. The prime minister and the president reached an accord just last December uh, called Beyond the Border, whereby we're trying to streamline implementation at the border by moving an awful lot of inspection away from the border. We've made clear, the prime minister has, that we regard a threat to U.S. security as a threat to Canadian security. We're very much in this together. And I'm assuming this reaches also to cooperation in terms of Afghanistan or some of the foreign... uh... Well, indeed, we joined um, the coalition in Afghanistan very early on. Uh, For 10 years, we fought uh, in the south. We were, in fact, responsible for most of that time for the coalition position in Kandahar on the uh, the Pakistani border in the southeast. We took a disproportionate share of casualties while there, and we remain as trainers of the Afghan national military. Roy, we are coming to the end of our interview. We should have some music to go out on. And I know that you like Dvorak. Maybe with the, what particular work would you like? Well, I like the cello. Um, I, I like the cello generally, and, and Dvorak's cello concerto uh, is the mellowness, the richness of, of the cello, uh, the exuberance at points during that particular concerto I've always appreciated. So that that is truly one of my I, – I, I heard it early in my life. Uh, Lynn Harrell, a famous American cellist, uh, came to Canada um, and performed uh, uh, in uh, the National Arts Center in Ottawa, um, uh, and where I grew up, and I became particularly impressed with that piece of music at that time. We've been speaking with Roy Norton. Thank you very much, Roy, for being with us today. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles, and thank you all for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 
855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.